Hi and welcome to another podcast in the embryology series. This ties in with the uh, embryology of the gut, the development of the alimentary tract in utero uh, lecture. My name's Sam Webster. As usual, I've got a cup of tea on the go, so excuse me if you hear me slurping every now and then. Um, But I'm going to work through the lecture, which if you're a Swansea medical student, you'll probably have a copy of. You'll be able to get hold of on Blackboard. and we'll let's see how we go. Okay, so in this lecture, we're going to talk about how the gut forms, um, how the gut tube forms, and how the parts of the gut form, how the associated uh, organs form, and so on and so on. And we'll work our way down from the esophagus. We'll avoid the oral cavity because that comes into head and neck development, really. We'll start from the esophagus and we'll work our way all the way down to the anus bit by bit. Um, And if you remember from the last lecture, the first 18 days of embryology, um, by the end of week three, by by the around 18 days, we got to the point where we were starting to talk about gastrulation. And we discussed how the two layered embryo the layers of the epiblast and the hyperblast, um, the bilaminar um, embryonic disc, becomes a trilaminar embryonic disc in the human, how it goes from two layers to three layers. And this is pretty much where the development of the gut begins. So you need to remember um, gastrulation. You remember the gastrulation is the start of morphogenesis. So we have this sheet of cells or these two sheets of cells and we start to see some shape form as we see the the formation of the primitive streak extending in the epiblast and with the primitive streak we start to see um, that the embryo does have a left and a right and a head end and a tail end and dorsal and ventral and so on so the cells have positional information they have these axes by which they know where they are and they know uh, what to do next and this relates to the formation of the gut. So those three germ layers then that then form from gastrulation are going to go on and form all the cells of the embryo and differentiate into all the embryonic tissues and organs. Uh, the, epi- the cells of the epiblast migrate downwards through the primitive streak, through the primitive groove, and um, displace the cells beneath the hyperblast cells. So the cells from the epiblast go on to form the three layers, the ectoderm, the mesoderm, and the endoderm. And hopefully you'll remember that the endoderm goes on to form uh, the epithelia, the respiratory and and gastrointestinal passages, and it goes on to form the glandular cells of the associated organs of the GI tract, like the liver and the pancreas and so on. So if we remember our three layers, ectoderm, mesoderm, endoderm, endoderm being um, lowermost, as it were, furthest from the epiblast, the cells that have migrated through the primitive streak. We need to be thinking about these cells and what they're going to do next to form the gut. So how do we go from the flat endodermal sheet to a tubular gut? And naturally this is rather difficult to describe without looking at any images, so it's worth looking at your textbook or the presentation here. But essentially we have a flat sheet then, which must form a tube. And the lateral edges of this flat sheet start to fold over, start to curl over. So left and right sides of this flat sheet start to curl over. And the head and the tail end also start to curl over. 
and you'll remember that beneath this layer is the yolk sac. The, we showed how the yolk sac forms in the, that first 18 days of embryology lecture. Uh, so some of the yolk sac starts to get pulled up and drawn in as the edges and the, the caudal and cephalic, the tail and the head ends, that is, start to curl over. And as all this draws together and curls and folds, we start to get a tube. So the tube then, so the gut tube then is partly formed by the yolk sac. So the um, the endoderm of the yolk sac and of that the this endodermal layer um, becomes the lining of the uh, of the gut tube. A lot of folding and so on and so on, and this occurs pretty much within week four. And during this process, we can see the yolk sac getting smaller and smaller and flattened until around 30 days. Um, it's not so easy to see. Okay, so we have our primitive gut. We have a gut tube. Another important concept then is that the gut tube imagine it running along the midline of the developing embryo the tube is tethered to the dorsal surface of the embryo it becomes tethered by let's say a sheet of connective tissue the dorsal mesentery and this connective tissue continues across the gut tube it continues ventrally as the ventral mesentery and these are going to obviously going to be very important when we relate this to adult structures um, and it's also important to <coughs> discussing where uh, structures form the gut tube then is contained within the embryo and it's um, so yeah, it opens, it's a, it begins at the stomadium, the primordial mouth, and it passes to the proctodium, the anal pit. It's still a closed tube at this point, but it's passing across the embryo. And it's also attached then to the yolk sac, if you remember how it formed, at the yolk stalk. And part of the yolk sac, uh, the allantois, which we'll talk about probably towards the end of this, this lecture, uh, comes from the yolk sac. Importantly, then, uh, we consider the gut tube to be, to be divided into three regions, the foregut, the midgut, and the hindgut. Different structures then arise in the foregut, in the midgut, and the hindgut. And this is important to helping you with your anatomy, helping you remember where structures are, uh, what their blood supply is, and so on and so on. Because the foregut which passes from the stomadium, the primitive mouth, uh, down to almost the point at which the uh, gut is connected to the yolk sac. Then the midgut is kind of the, the mid part where the this primitive gut tube is still connected to the yolk sac. And the hindgut then is the remaining part beyond that um, after the connection to the yolk sac down to the proctodium, the future anal pit. And each 
part, each each part of the gut, the foregut, the midgut, and the hindgut originally has its own separate artery as the blood the circulatory system starts to develop. And as the parts of the foregut develop, they take this blood supply with them. Okay, let's start with the foregut then. So the foregut will go on to form the primordial pharynx, so the structures of the oral cavity, tongue, tonsils, salivary glands, part of the upper respiratory system, part of the lower respiratory system as well. So the respiratory system is going to bud from and form from the foregut, talking about the lungs and what have you here. Uh, from the foregut also forms the esophagus and the stomach, the duodenum, the liver, and the biliary apparatus and the pancreas and of course the liver and the biliary apparatus and the pancreas are around the level of the duodenum uh, the midgut then the, most of the small intestine including um, a large part of the duodenum forms from the midgut the cecum the appendix the ascending colon and about two-thirds of the right side of the transverse colon all form from the midgut from the hindgut forms then the remaining left part of the transverse colon, the descending colon, the sigmoid colon, the rectum, the superior part of the anal canal, and also uh, the epithelium of the urinary bladder and uh, the urethra form from the hindgut and the allantois. So we'll work our way through these parts of the gut. In the foregut then, we start at the esophagus. Uh, this is the first part of the tube, nice and simple. It elongates, starts off very short, so the stomach is almost at the height of the pharynx, and it elongates, the esophagus actively gets longer and reaches its final length, its relative final length, by about week seven. And this is common throughout different parts of the gut. What happens is epithelium rapidly proliferates to fill the lumen of the esophagus, so it becomes a solid tube, and this solid tube is then recanalized. It's reopened to become a hollow tube, and this occurs by about week eight. So we'll see this as we go through the gut. This occurs again and again. So there are some uh, possible clinical complications then of this uh, recanalization not occurring properly. We have esophageal atresia which is blockage of the esophagus, complete blockage. So the, uh, the lumen of the esophagus has been refilled by epithelium and hasn't been, this hasn't been cleared. And we get atresia, we get a blockage at this point in the gut tube. And we can also get esophageal stenosis, whereby the, 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 the lumen of the esophagus is narrowed. So the, uh, the solid epithelium filled um, embryolog embryological esophagus has been partially cleared and not completely cleared. Um, either that or it's caused by a failure of esophageal blood vessels to develop or, or something similar. This isn't particularly common, but it's, um, it's a concept we'll meet as we go through the, down the gut tube, and it's more common in different regions. The stomach then, after the esophagus, next bit, um, obviously starts off as a simple tube, like the rest of the gut. And of course, as we know, the adult shape of the stomach, just like we know the adult shape of the kidneys, this stomach-shaped stomach, um, has an interesting method of forming. It starts off as a simple tube, and it starts to grow faster on one side of the tube than the other side. 
and in fact this is the um, dorsal part of the stomach so the back part of the tube the dorsal part of the tube grows faster than the ventral part of the tube so it starts to bend starts to fold as it's getting bigger and the dorsal border is going to become the greater curvature of the stomach so we're starting to get some shape forming here the other important um, mechanism that occurs is that the stomach rotates 90 degrees so this simple tube is dilating is getting fatter it's getting uh, stomach shaped and then if you were to look from a superior aspect looking down on the stomach it rotates 90 degrees clockwise this is important because it takes the structures beneath it i.e the structures of the duodenum and around that with it it also explains why in the adult we see the left vagus nerve supplying the anterior wall of the stomach and the right vagus nerve supplying the posterior wall so if you remember the original tube of the stomach we have the vagus left vagus on the left right vagus on the right as the stomach rotates around 90 degrees it takes those branches of the vagus nerve with it so the left vagus comes to pass to the anterior wall and so on um, if you remember the connective tissue the ventral mesentery and the dorsal mesentery these are carried which are attaching the uh, the gut tube at this point to the dorsal part of the uh, embryo and to the ventral part of the embryo as the stomach rotates it takes the connective tissue sheets with it so the ventral mesogastrium passing anteriorly passing eventually from the stomach is carried around and this is going to become the lesser sac the dorsal mesogastrium expands so the dorsal mesogastrium was on the dorsal part of the stomach and we remembered that the dorsal part of the stomach is going to become the greater curvature this is the the uh, the pit that's growing the fastest the dorsal mesogastrium is also going to expand and grow very quickly and this is going to become the greater momentum big sheet of connective tissue big apron of connective tissue hanging down from the the uh, the stomach over the intestines If we go back to the idea of blockage, again we can have um, a blockage in the pylorus. So where the stomach opens into the duodenum in the adult, we have um, we have a um, sphincter here, as it were, which um, keeps the food in the stomach while it's being churned around and then squirts out into the duodenum. In the embryo, we have a narrowing here um, with as the pylorus thickens. The muscles may also hypertrophy here as the embryo and the fetus develop and we may get a blockage, we may get um, a narrowing, a pyloric stenosis, which is more common than the situation we saw in the esophagus. Um, some statistics are this, is, this occurs one in 150 male infants and once in 750 female infants. And of course in the baby then they feed and they take the milk into the stomach and the stomach becomes distended with feeding but it can't pass beyond the pylorus because it's blocked or um, constricted and uh, the baby projectile vomits the contents of the stomach with some force because the stomach has been distended after feeding uh, and this is a, a sign of pyloric stenosis
Moving on to the duodenum. Now the duodenum marks the point where the foregut becomes the midgut. So the foregut is supplied by the um, celiac trunk. Right? And branches of the celiac trunk go on to supply the foregut and structures forming from the foregut. The midgut then is supplied by the superior mesenteric artery. And as the midgut extends, it takes branches of that with it. Um, and the hindgut is supplied by the inferior mesenteric artery. So the duodenum then marks embryologically um, the distinction between the foregut and the midgut. So part of the duodenum is supplied by branches of the celiac trunk. Parts of the duodenum are supplied by branches of the superior mesenteric artery. And the structures associated are supplied by branches of um, the same vessels. The duodenum again then starts as uh, part of the simple tube and you'll know that in the adult it forms a C-shape so in weeks four to six in the embryo the duodenum grows and lengthens rapidly and curves to form that C-shape and as the stomach rotates it rotates to the right with the stomach and again the epithelium within this tube proliferates filling the lumen between weeks five and six and this is normally recanalized but this is another possible source of blockage in the baby, in the newborn. Um, duodenal stenosis would be occlusion. Duodenal atresia uh, would be um, a complete blockage. And if you remember what happens in the duodenum, bile is added to the gut tube. So if there's bile in the vomit, then the blockage is at the level of the duodenum. Uh, and duodenal atresia is more common in uh, children with Down syndrome. So vomit with bile and stomach contents means the blockage is at the level of the duodenum. And the reason there's a blockage there is because this is a normal embryological process, which is normally cleared, but in some cases isn't. The duodenum is also important then, since we're talking about bile, because the pancreas, the gallbladder, and the liver are all connected to the duodenum. And as they're connected, they're affected by the rotation of the stomach and the lengthening and formation of the C-shape of the duodenum. Uh, we talk about the liver then. The liver starts as a small hepatic diverticulum, a ventral outgrowth from the foregut. And that ventral outgrowth is going to go on to form the liver the gallbladder and it remains attached to the foregut by another tube which will become the biliary duct. So this outgrowth occurs within the connective tissue of the septum transversum, um, a massive splanchnic mesoderm which is forming that ventral mesentery, that ventral sheet of connective tissue. The liver enlarges divides into two parts and the connection with the foregut which was initially quite wide narrows to become the ball duct the bile duct and um, another outgrowth begins from the bile duct and this is going to become the gallbladder so as the liver is growing within that sheet of connective tissue and is ventral to the foregut and the stomach the connective tissue that's between the liver and the stomach is going to become the lesser omentum. It's 
it's going to become that sheet of connective tissue that in the adult lies between the liver and the stomach. Um, and because the liver is within the sheet of connective tissue, the sheet of connective tissue continues ventrally to the ventral wall of the embryo. So that sheet of connective tissue between the liver and the ventral wall is going to become the falciform ligament connecting the adult liver to the um, abdominal wall, the anterior abdominal wall. So these structures forming within sheets of connective tissue explain why we see the arrangement of connective tissue uh, that we see in the adult in anatomy, in the anatomy lab. Um, the liver is an organ that in the embryo expands very rapidly. It's a cytophomatopoiesis. And by week 10, it accounts for 10% of the total body weight of the embryo. It becomes functional, so we're into the fetal period now. It becomes functional and starts producing bile by about week 12, changing the colour of the meconium, the contents of the, of the gut tube in the, the fetus, to a dark green colour, uh, giving the colour to the first stools of the baby. And whereas initially the bile duct passes, the, 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 as the liver and the gallbladder sit ventrally to the foregut initially, the bile duct passes in a straight line from the gallbladder back to the foregut. As the duodenum in the stomach rotates, that bile duct, that tube rotates with it and is curled around so it passes eventually for, uh, pretty much from the dorsal side into the uh, into the duodenum. So the rotation of the stomach is affecting the path of the bile duct. If we move on to the pancreas, so we've got the pancreas at the same level then, and the pancreas also forms with the the gallbladder and the liver, uh, and the pancreas is of course at the level of the duodenum. Initially, the pancreas forms in the human from two buds, from two parts. There's a little ventral bud, which buds off from that early bile duct. And there's a larger dorsal bud, uh, budding off directly from the, the dorsal side of the, uh, of the gut tube. So initially, one is in front and one is behind of the gut tube. The stomach, of course, rotates through 90 degrees, taking these structures with it as the duodenum lengthens and, and twists. And the ventral pancreatic bud is brought around to meet the dorsal pancreatic bud. And they both fuse. But of course, the dorsal pancreatic bud was connected to the bile duct by, uh, sorry, was connected to the duodenum by a, a, a tube. And the pancreatic bud was connected to the duodenum, to the foregut, by the bile duct. So each bud had its own duct. The Fused pancreatic buds then are essentially initially connected to the duodenum by two separate ducts and the ducts also fuse um, with the the bile duct becoming the main duct of the pancreas so the main pancreatic ducts the, the ducts of the pancreas fuse and the main pancreatic duct enters the duodenum with the bile duct at the major papilla but part of the dorsal bud's duct often persists as an accessory pancreatic duct, opening into a minor duodenal papilla 
just above the major duodenal papilla. So this explains how we often see uh, two ducts coming from the pancreas because the pancreas started off as two separate buds. The pancreas also becomes functional as time goes on within the fetal period. So it's producing insulin by about 10 weeks and glucagon by about 15 weeks. Okay, so that's the foregut. That was fairly complicated. There's lots of bits there, lots of twisting going on. Uh, moving on to the midgut, we're talking here about the small intestine, the cecum, the appendix, the ascending colon, part of the transverse colon. This is a little bit simpler in that we initially have um, a simple tube which is already looped and pointing out towards the uh, primitive or the secondary yolk sac and behind it this looping tube is connected to the uh, dorsal aorta by the superior mesenteric artery so we have a little loop we have um, superior mesenteric artery supplying it with some with uh, blood in this rudimentary cardiovascular system and we have a sheet of connective tissue uh, the dorsal uh, mesentery attaching it to the, the dorsal wall. So at the end of week five, at the beginning of week six, this loop of um, gut tube starts to lengthen quite rapidly. And it, uh, this lengthening causes looping and bunching up of, of, of the tube. So the tube goes from a nice simple U-shape to uh, the looping and bunching that we see in the adult small intestine. Uh, and these are the, the uh, chigeno-ideal loops. As they loop and they extend, they take with them the mesentery, the dorsal mesentery behind them, and they take branches of the, of the superior mesenteric artery. And by about week eight, this uh, looping is... Uh, extended so much that the uh, the future small intestine quite naturally herniates into the uh, umbilical cord. And this is a normal part of gut development. And the tube continues to extend and rotate, uh, extend and bunch up and become convoluted, but it begins to rotate. And as it begins to rotate, the intestines return to the abdomen from the umbilical cord. So the hernia is uh, removed. Uh, the intestines continue to extend and loop up and become convoluted and it continues to rotate until the, the complete rotation of the small intestines um, is about 270 degrees and as it finishes its rotation it starts to begin the cecum to bring the cecum the first part of the large intestine down towards the lower light the lower right quadrant of the abdomen and remember that while all this looping and rotating has gone on it's taken folds of the sheet of dorsal mesentery with it which are going to form the mesentery that we see in the adult situation and they've taken branches of the superior mesenteric artery hence how such a large section of the adult gut can be supplied by the one artery because it was just a simple loop to begin with which has just become longer and uh, folded and twisted around Again, then there are some abnormalities of these functions not occurring properly, and there are anomalies of gut rotation. So if the gut doesn't rotate properly, there can be some uh, malrotation problems, such as obstructions to the superior mesenteric artery. 
Um, something that's easy to imagine is that the um, this natural herniation of the small intestine into the umbilical cord sometimes doesn't return back to the abdominal cavity and persists in the newborn. And this is umphalocele. So this is this natural herniation persisting. But also a different type of herniation would be gastroschisis, um, where the herniation is direct into the amniotic cavity. So a herniation of the uh, of the gut tube, not into the umbilical cord, but passing direct outside the abdominal wall into the amniotic cavity. Um, okay, and there are many more, but those are the uh, those are a couple of examples. So that's the mid gut done. That was fairly straightforward, much more straightforward than the foregut because there are far fewer structures associated with it. And we're moving on to the hindgut as time progresses. Okay, so when we talk about the hindgut, we're talking about the last part, the left part of the transverse colon, the descending colon, the sigmoid colon, the rectum, and the superior part of the anal canal. And we're also going to talk about how part of the urogenital system forms. These structures then are all supplied by the inferior mesenteric arteries. We have initially this short section of tube, which is going to form the hindgut and it's supplied initially by the one artery, the inferior mesenteric artery, and as this tube becomes more complicated, it takes branches of the inferior mesenteric artery with it. 